0: I just think pop culture is this great magnifying lens through which you can view actual culture. And I feel like that's a big part of my job is taking that lens and telling you why these things matter. Even even the most frivolous seeming things can have kind of a, a wider importance and ripple through the rest of culture in really intriguing ways.
1: welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out. I'm Katie. Thank you so much for being here. As always, it means so much to me that you found your way here and that you're listening, but it keeps meaning more to me lately. The longer I've been doing this, the more options for content there are out there. And I'm really excited about this week's episode, about today's guest. This week, I'm talking to New York Times journalist Kyle Buchanan. He's also the author of the new book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which we talk about in the episode. He is a pop culture reporter and he serves as the projectionist, the award season columnist for the New York Times. Prior to joining the Times in 2018, he was a senior editor at Vulture, New York Magazine's entertainment website, where he covered the movie industry. He took over the late, great journalist David Carr's New York Times column that was called The Carpetbagger. It's now called The Projectionist. We talk a little bit about that here. Kyle is a native of Southern California, and he lives in L.A. now, but we recorded this over Zoom since he was in the midst of a day of press, back-to-back interviews promoting his book. So you'll notice that this is a little shorter than usual. I'm learning that... I'm not great at brevity, which will shock no one. It's a skill to do an interview in a certain amount of time. When I have unlimited time with someone, I can kind of let it build and I can not worry that I won't have time to cover everything I want to cover with them so I can go in a different direction if I want to and I can go somewhere that's not going to go anywhere and know that I can cut that out. With this, I couldn't do that. So it's a little different style of an interview, and I'm I'm learning a different style and it's something I would like to develop. Actually, I, I kind of say to myself sometimes before interviews, like get it in in an hour, like just <laughs> make it work. And then you know, sometimes two hours passed. Appropriately, actually, we talk about the craft of interviewing a little bit in this because in the research for his new book, he did. Over a hundred interviews and obviously as a journalist and a reporter it's a main element of his job and he has so much experience in it. So he gives some really interesting insights about conversation and connection and as a journalist he gives advice on writing and of course we talk about his love of movies, our love of movies, going to the movie theater and with the Oscars around the corner I ask him a bit about that, his own media intake. And of course, we talk about his new book and the process of writing this oral history. So as you'll hear, his book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max Fury Road, is about the 2015 film, Mad Max Fury Road, which I had not seen before his publicist, reached out about having him on the show. So when I got my book in the mail, I asked everyone I knew if they had seen the film and what their thoughts were. And to be honest with you, action is not really my genre. I often say that my preferred movie type is heavy on dialogue, low on plot. (laughs) And when I was asking my friend Mark about his thoughts on this film and if he had, you know, heard about this book, he sent me a text. <laughs> and I'm going to read that verbatim. He said, couldn't be less your thing. All plot, not really any dialogue. <laughs> and uh, turns out that's pretty true. However, I can really appreciate the wildness of making this. Project and that is actually really fascinating to me and something that Kyle and I discuss and we get into how attractive it is to talk to people about something that you love a piece of content a film a movie a piece of music and connect over it and the process of making something especially something so huge so I actually really enjoyed prepping for this podcast and 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 spending time with his work and reading his book and. Before we get into this conversation, I want to kick off this week by reading a quote from his predecessor, actually, David Carr, that applies to the week that I've been having and felt comforting to me. And perhaps it might feel true for you or comforting to you when you hear this as well. David Carr is a very famous journalist. He had a cult following, a huge following on Twitter. And you might know him from the New York Times documentary, Page One. But I didn't really fully become aware of him or his work or his book until after he died. And I actually remember vividly an interview with his daughter and Terry Gross on Fresh Air from 2019, And I don't know if you do this, but I remember exactly where I was when I heard this episode. I'll tell you, I was on a flight. I was on my way back home to New York where I was living at the time from Austin, Texas. I was there on a work situation. And this episode is particularly special because his daughter is being interviewed. Her book was just coming out and she made a documentary that was coming out at that time as well. And they discuss both. And they sprinkle in some clips from her father, from David Carr, when he had been interviewed previously for Fresh Air. And I even remember where I was standing on the airplane when I heard a particular part of this interview where he's talking to Terry Gross about his sobriety And he shares a prayer that he keeps in his wallet. It was a time in my life where I was feeling particularly vulnerable and fragile and looking everywhere for support and guidance and inspiration, asking everyone for advice. And that day, it came on the plane, standing in the back near the bathroom with my headphones in, listening to this... Clip this part of this episode of him from years past talking to Terry Gross. And I found this episode today and re listened to it actually and saw that it was published on my birthday in 2019. I'll link it here and I'll read that part about his prayer at the end of this episode in case you're curious. And the quote of his that I want to mention that speaks to how I've been feeling this week, which is essentially overwhelmed. I've been feeling really overwhelmed and stretched and wishing for alone time, wishing to start on projects that I haven't started on, wishing to make progress in things that I've have started. And with all of these ideas, I realize I'm really bad at scoping. I would probably be able to finish a lot of them in an hour, in a day, in an afternoon if I just sat down and did it, but I build it up so much, it snowballs, and I overwhelm myself, and I end up doing not much, right? Speaking of a movie that is mostly dialogue and really hardly any plot at all that I quote all the time. That has definitely come up here if you've been listening. But before Sunrise, I think the first Richard Linkletter movie of that series, Julie, you probably know what I'm going to say. This could be a drinking game on this podcast at this point, but Julie Deppley says, I have so much I want to be doing. I end up doing not much. And I think a real soothing solve to that Feeling of overwhelm is this line from David Carr. It's in a commencement speech that he gave to Berkeley University in 2014. And he says, just do what's in front of you. Don't worry about the plot to take over the world. Just do what's in front of you and do it well. I think that if you concentrate on your plot to take over the world, you're going to miss things. I really liked that, taking the focus away from world domination and just doing one thing at a time and concentrating on nurturing the garden in front of you because I tend to blow things up way out of proportion and think about big ideas and then do not much. So in case you were feeling similarly this week or at all or have felt that way, Maybe that line from our guest's predecessor (laughs) is useful to you. And without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Kyle Buchanan from the New York Times. Maybe if you are a daily listener of the Daily Podcast from the New York Times, you might recognize his voice from that. He was on a couple months ago talking about, or I guess it was a while ago now, talking about the Golden Globes and he's really incredible. And I loved this conversation and and getting to meet him. And I really hope you do too. Thank you so much for doing this, Kyle. I'm I'm so happy that we're fitting it in and I'm really excited to chat with you and talk to you about your book and everything.
0: (laughs) Me too. I appreciate it.
1: So you took over for the late, great journalist, David Carr, at the New York Times, the previously called the Carpetbagger column, which is now called the Projectionist. And, you know, you're the awards season columnist for the Times. I'm curious what that means for your media intake throughout the year.
0: It means I see just about every movie I can. (laughs) You know, I don't envy my friends who work on the television desk because it feels like there's more TV than ever. You have to watch so many episodes of so many shows. I already find it hard enough to just be able to see every movie and talk about them. But, um, but you know, it's a, it's a blessing. I, I love that my job is literally go see all the movies uh, and tell us which ones you like and which performances are notable. That's so much fun to me. And then to, you know, on top of that, get to interview people about how they made these things. It's, it's, it's a great job. I, I have no complaints.
1: Yeah, I'm curious what what do you do to decompress because I know for many of us watching things and the escapism of of TV or film or reading, but for you, can you still get there knowing that you'll have to or get to make work about it?
0: Not always. <laughs> my my version of decompressing is not looking at a screen if I can help it. You know, I mean, I know yeah, a lot of people like to just unwind watching television at the end of the day, which I'll sometimes do, you know, if my boyfriend is over. But I I don't know, I I think what's important to me, uh, especially also as a writer, is to go out there and live some life so that it enlivens what I'm writing, you know, so that I'm drawing from not just the experiences of other people that I'm writing about, but my own experiences. So, what I do to decompress is go see people in the flesh, go have dinner with friends go have a drink, just go out and, you know, see the world and try to be as social as I can, especially, you know, after uh, a very complicated two years of the pandemic, it's a real priority for me to have that in-person connection with people.
1: Mm, Yeah. So you grew up in LA, were you always following film and culture? How did you get into journalism and reporting on pop culture?
0: I think I always was interested in movies. I guess I just didn't always know how they worked or how they were made. And that's the thing that really compelled me. You know, I started at college as a journalism major and was going to USC. They've got a great film school there. And I just happened to take a film class my freshman year and I fell in love. It kind of, it, it was everything that I loved about writing, but also with a sort of you know, your imagination is the limit kind of freedom that was really intoxicating. So, I ended up transferring into the film school and I think I've found my way on a path to kind of like marry the two interests of my life. I love telling real people stories. I love pointing to something and saying, I want to know more about it and calling people up or meeting with them and finding out. And I love movies, you know, I love the... Art of playing pretend. I love what it says about us that, you know, these are the movies and TV shows that we respond to. I love when we get to see ourselves on screen. I just think pop culture is this great magnifying lens through which you can view actual culture. And I feel like that's a big part of my job is taking that lens and telling you why these things matter. Even, even the most frivolous seeming things can have kind of a a wider importance and ripple through the rest of culture in really intriguing ways.
1: Mm, Yeah. And I love how you have this perspective that's that's so sweet and, and filled with like so much earnest gratitude because I feel that way. I mean, obviously I'm not like at the times, but even that the fact that I get to do this podcast and talk to people who made things like your book and the people that I get to spend an hour with and, and talk to. And I I feel like it really is connection and to get excited about being a fan of something and, and using, talking to people about things that we love or things that we've made. You learn a lot about someone and, and more so than people talk, people love talking about themselves, but I think they really come alive when they talk about something, a piece of, art or culture that they love or food or whatever it is and then they can connect over it it's it's really lovely
0: (laughs) yeah i think i think it's a intriguing way to get even the most bashful people to talk about themselves if you ask them you know what movies what television shows what songs they like it reveals something about them you know it's 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 a way to feel things i mean i used to say like you know i didn't read philosophy books I watch movies, movies taught me how to live, movies taught me how I felt about myself, and they still can, you know, sometimes a line just hits you or an idea hits you and you're like, huh, why am I responding to that so much? What does that say about me? You know, and I I think that's really exciting when it's always very easy to just kind of like get stuck in our habits and our routines. And so to get to escape into a new world for two hours and then emerge and think, well, am I a different person now in all these subtle or, or profound ways? That's the exciting potential of a movie. They don't all give you that, but when they do, you know, it's it's a really wonderful way to experience an epiphany.
1: Yeah. And then to connect with other people over that or to use it as shared language, just like people use yeah. astrology to be like, I'm really organized and I'm kind of like this. See me. Instead, you're like, well, it's a Virgo thing, you know, or whatever it is. I think people want the shared
0: language. Or to share that movie experience. I mean, you know, over the pandemic, I think increasingly we watch everything on our televisions. I don't know what the future of the movie theater business is going to look like in 10 years, but if it goes away, I'll really miss it because it's such a great communal thing to have the audience react as you're reacting, to feel like you're all swept up in a great thing together, you know? Yeah. your focus is on whatever's on that screen as it is for everybody else in that movie theater. And yet it's so communal. Yeah. There's just nothing else that's quite like that. You know, even, even uh, going to a concert uh, is not the same situation. I I love that. And and to me, those theatrical movie going experiences, they're almost like a psychic thumbprint that, uh, that you put onto the, you know, the, the, the negative of my, of my favorite films. Like, when I watch those movies or see some of those scenes, I think about the way people reacted and it just makes the whole thing like a more full bodied experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I saw Dune for the, as my first movie back into the movie theater. And I mean, I guess that's colored with, you know, (laughs) two years of a pandemic, but I'll always remember that experience and it, and it flooded back to me. I, I moved here unexpectedly from New York at the beginning of the pandemic and I would just walk around and, you know, I had movie pass and I would like Don Draper style, go to the movies in the middle of the day by myself. (laughs) And I would meet up with people and I always loved the movies with people before we went to dinner because I really like to talk about it and get everyone's thought on it. And and then I, I have this interesting habit of typing the movie into the podcast app and like hearing what smart people like you have to say about the movie. And I really like how you explained that. And I completely agree because just the act of the tendency to double screen or stop and start that you can do when you're at home. Or, you know, for me, I don't even have a TV and I work on like a very small computer, basically an iPad, you know, so it's like watching things there. It's so, so easy to stop and start, but you're all, like you said, doing it together. And I think that collective energy is, is really important. Do you think there's anything that will help it stick around?
0: You know, I mean, it is the thing that we can look to these superhero movies to ensure those movies are going to come out in theaters. They're going to make lots of money. They'll keep making them. I hope we get other sorts of movies in theaters. Because, you know, watching a film like Parasite in a theater is a different experience than watching it at home. Some films are really profound experiences, but they're slower. And It's tempting when it's 10am and you're watching it and the sunlight is streaming in and you're getting text messages to just sort of, you know, lose that bond, that connection you've got with the movie and a lot of movies won't survive that loss. To me, it's a real pleasure and an increasing rarity to get to go into a theater and totally surrender to it. You know, I keep my, my phone on airplane mode. When I go in there, I don't want text. I don't want to be reminded of the outside world. Don't we have enough reminders of that as it is, you know, part of the emerging from the movie theater is not just sort of like coming back into your own world and your own consciousness, but choosing when you want to like take the airplane mode off and and let the outside world once again, you know, hold you hostage. It does that so often that now I really see the movies as an escape more than ever. I mean, they've always been treated that way. But also, yeah, an escape from our devices, a chance to go to a different world. That's so valuable to me.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on speaking of a particular movie. Congratulations on your book. It must have been such a huge undertaking. And I read that you have always loved books about making movies like Monster by John Gregory Dunn about the making of Up Close and Personal, which I really want to read now that you mentioned it. So I'm curious, what was your process for writing and researching this book i know it started as you mostly did the interviews which you did 135 which is so many <laughs> during the non-vaccinated period of the pandemic right
0: yeah boy <laughs> i i don't know that i could have accomplished as much as i accomplished in a normal life setting it was the slim silver lining of this pandemic that you know i had just gone through a breakup right before I sold the book.
1: That'll do it.
0: <laughs> so it was just me and my dog in my house and you know I mean my my job at the time at the New York Times is very full time, very intensive, but I had all these nights that you know needed to be spent somehow and I was tired of living in the reality of my situation so I thought okay, well, I will devote this part of my life to this book. And having these connections on Zoom or in phone calls or WhatsApp messages with these incredible artists who worked on the movie. So, yeah, I, I packed those days, uh, you know, the, the fall of, uh, of 2020 so full with interviewing people. And, you know, it, it was a great gift. I'm glad that I was able to spend that time doing it. And I'm so proud of the book. And I think that's also why, you know, when we talked earlier about how to decompress, that's why it's such a valuable thing for me to try to do it in person. I, I think it's great that technology allows us to have these really accessible conversations with one another, but to be able to look in someone's eye and to feel their presence in person is so valuable, especially when you do what I do, which is often having to describe what people are like when I interview movie stars or, or do profiles of them. I feel like that's the thing the reader wants to know the most. They're like, I've seen them on the screen. What are they like in real life? And it's hard when you're Zooming with someone. It's just another screen, you know? So, to be to get to experience people in person and, uh, you know, when I'm lucky, people I interview in person is, uh, is really important to me, uh, I, you know? Uh, when you do 130 interviews on Zoom or the phone call... You're, you're just anxious to sit in a restaurant opposite somebody.
1: Yeah, I think about that all the time. I'm, I'm getting close to 400 of these. And wow. when I lived in New York, I did them all in person. And then the the pandemic hit and I got really comfortable doing them this way. And I've done a couple since vaccinated in person. And it, it it's almost like working a different muscle, but there's to your point about the movies and the thumbprint of memory, I think about that all the time where I, I you're lovely and I, I will remember this, but it's a lot more likely that I'll remember, you know, an interview where some came over to my apartment or we met at a studio or I went to their office because there's so it's so much more visceral. And yeah. those little moments like, like you have an anecdote about was it Tom Hardy who asked to buy your hat? before interviewing him. Yeah, like that sticks out in my mind more than, you know, probably what you, the content of the questions you asked because these throwaway moments, like I think that says a lot about him as a human being more so than you could get in a answer to a planned question.
0: Well, also Katie, I mean, I'm sure you found this to be the case. Something you have to adjust for is so much of an interview is gaining somebody's trust and you have to do it in a way that happens very fast and isn't sort of desperate, you know? Somehow you have to convey something about yourself and your interest in that person that makes them relax and makes them willing to open up and trust you. That's easier to do in person, you know? There's so many other ways you can convey it. You can convey it with your body language, you can convey it with what you wear to the interview, your just general demeanor if you're smiling, if you're, you know, casual and you want the other person to be casual. It's not as easy over Zoom and definitely not as easy over a phone call to establish that connection. I guess what I rely on is just an ability to do it because I know that at my core, I am a curious, unmalicious person who just wants to know things. And as long as I can make it an enjoyable experience for whoever I'm interviewing, hopefully we can get to that place of trust.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Like, Terry Gross talks about how she does these mostly remote. Yeah. And I do think, you know, what we're doing right now, camera off, there is this sort of... I went to Catholic school and had to do this strange thing called confession where you, like, have a screen between you. And... Maybe that's for a reason. So people are more honest, you know, maybe there is this little bit of like when you're a teen chatting on the phone and you're doodling or you're walking, like I I, I get that part too, but that only works if the first part that you described of setting the groundwork for trust is created.
0: No, I think you're onto something. I used to have this theory of something I called the 1 a.m. conversation because I felt like even before I really knew how to express myself as freely as I am with you right now, or, you know, in any of my interviews when I was younger and I don't know, maybe a little more reticent and unsure of myself, I felt most alive, most exposed and most vulnerable at 1am, you know, whether I was having a conversation in a bar with somebody if I happened to stay up, you know, whether I was in bed with someone or even if I was just by myself about to fall asleep, there's just something about those wee hours where it's darker, where you've lived your whole day where you're tired and more vulnerable that makes you like a little bit more prone to philosophy, more, more willing to kind of think about things in a unique way. And so, when I started interviewing people, I thought to myself, well, how do I kind of capture the spirit of the 1am conversation just at any time of day, you know, whether it's noon and I'm totally stone cold sober, you know, how, how do I get to a place that feels as free and expressive as I do at 1am in a bar with somebody. So, that's kind of always been my challenge is, you know, how do I be the most open version of myself? Because if I want other people to open up, I got to match them, you know, in good faith. And I want to also be that person when I write, you know, it's one thing for me to have those conversations with people. It's a whole other thing to be able to sort of effectively translate that on the page and get Their spirit across working for the New York Times. You know, they call it the paper of record. When you write a profile of somebody, it becomes very canonical. It carries a lot of weight. In some cases, the people you're writing about have been dreaming of a New York Times profile for their lives. Uh, So I treat that with the right gravity and I want there to be skin in the game on my behalf too. I want to feel just as vulnerable when I write as I did when I had that conversation. Even if it doesn't seem like the article is about me, I want to feel like I'm venturing something that I'm willing to let my descriptions be a little bit more poetic, that there is an emotional undercurrent to what I'm writing that I have no idea if the reader even picks up on, but I know that it animates me when I'm writing it.
1: Mm. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I love the 1AM theory. It's it's funny. I I send a lot of voice texts, and I I do this thing where I call it kind of to the opposite of that. I call it like getting high in the morning where I leave at a certain time of day, uh-huh. and I it's mm. like a mix of like sun and endorphins and caffeine hitting me all at once, and I'm like firing off kind of in a Julia Cameron artist way, morning pages sort of way to like Safe people around the world, my thoughts and feelings that, you know, just kind of need to go somewhere. And it's similar. It's like, I think there's something about right before bed and early in the morning. That's just a little bit clearer before kind of like being in the movie theater, you know, like before all the distractions are in or after they're all asleep. And yeah, that looseness and clarity is is really beautiful and how you described that vulnerability in your writing is, I can sense it when I read your work.
0: Oh, that's kind of you to say. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll write something down in my notes app right as I'm going to bed. And it's fascinating to wake up and sort of stumble upon it and read it. Sometimes you feel almost bashful. There's there's such an open version of yourself at night or at least there is in my case. I, I envy people who can get there in the mornings. That's so not me. I'm such a night person. I don't know. Things calm down at night. You know, I I live in LA and New York is asleep, so I'm getting less text messages and work emails by then. Just feels like there's a focus, there's a relaxation, but at the same time, things are enlivened at that time of night. And I, I really don't wanna have to wait until it's nighttime to feel those things. So that's that's always my mission. How do I get there? How do I have such a satisfying open exchange with other people and honestly myself at any time of day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it is probably the technology coming at us so fast. And I, I think with this, this project, your book, having a place, I'm so happy to have that context of, you know, when you started it and what was going on with you personally and professionally to, you know, like you said, you have a very full-time job at the times. However, having this outlet of focus, I find, you know, years ago when I was writing a book, it it was obviously challenging, but I would, having some place to, almost to the opposite end of decompressing, like to compress yourself almost, you know, like how you do with like a workout to put everything somewhere is really useful or, or always has been in in my case. This week's episode is brought to you by Thrive Market, which is an online membership-based market on a mission to make things affordable for everyone. They are organic without overpaying, I love them, I've been using them for years. They carry some of my favorite brands that I truly can't find anywhere else. And if I can find them elsewhere, I have to go to a specific store to get this thing and another store that carries this thing. Thrive Market has it all, and here's the best part, they have it for the best price and it comes right to me. Everything from pantry essentials, sustainable meat and seafood, non-toxic cleaning supplies, beauty products, right to your door and you'll find them at a lower price than everywhere else they'll even match it some of my favorite brands that i've purchased there are these seaweed snacks i've talked about them before i'll talk about them again they're called chompers i've bought them for years they're actually pretty expensive but worth it to me for the very satisfying crunch of chomping on a chomper. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Highly recommend. Best price of anywhere I've found. And they have this mustard that I love. It's the Annie's brand horseradish variety. I swear by it. I think it is the best mustard on the market. If you like horseradish, honestly, even if you don't, it's not super spicy and it almost has this creamy texture to it. I put it in everything. I buy my nutritional yeast from them. I use that a lot. I... Buy a lot of tinned fish from Thrive Market. That's something I love to have on hand and eat pretty frequently. And their quality of the products that they carry. I recently got some probiotics there. I love it. Everything that they carry you can trust is the best because they go through this really careful vetting process. So whatever you need, whether it's, you know, you're searching for a specific, you know, gluten-free situation or you want to search by BIPOC owned brands, which I think is a, such a great filter, you can do that. There's over 90 plus filters that you can work with on their site. And it's a grocery store that gives back. With Thrive Market, your membership means more for families in need and our planet. When you join, they donate a membership to a family in need and $4.5 million have been donated in healthy groceries and counting. And oh, one more thing that I keep saying this is the best part, but this really is a fantastic part carbon-neutral shipping, and they're on a mission to become the first climate-positive grocer. Can your grocery store do all of that? Now it can. Go to thrivemarket.com slash letitout. Join today and get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. What a deal. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash let it out and get over 40% off your order and a free gift worth over $50. Thrivemarket.com slash let it out. This week is also brought to you by Bombas. Bamba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bambas, you are also giving to someone in need. Bamba's designed their socks, their shirts, their underwear to be clothes that you want to put on every day. They make them really soft, seamless, tagless. They are luxurious and they feel super cozy, really soft materials like cotton and wool and cashmere and they make really great layers when it's chilly or you just want to put something on inside to warm yourself up. There's a pair of Bomba socks for everything you do. They come with So many different options like performance styles for every sort of sport and activity that you would do. Their t-shirts are really designed, you know, well to look good as well as feel really great. Again, seamless fabrics, very soft. And their underwear, you won't even tell is there. It's like a second skin situation. I love everything I have from them, but especially these socks that the color combination is really good. I feel like my feet don't sweat in them, but they're also warm, which is a real Goldilocks situation for socks. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item that you buy. Go to bombas.com slash let it out and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash let it out for 20% off com slash let it out. Since this isn't a film podcast, in case someone hasn't seen it, how would you describe the series? And really the anecdote I would love for you to tell if I can put a penny in your jukebox is I... I heard you say that even after spending so much time with Mad Max, which is, we should say, the film that your new book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, is about, oral history of, you watched it recently with some friends. And I heard you say that you weren't sick of it and you were still engrossed in the story. So maybe start there. You know, what was it like to watch it with friends, knowing your book was about to come out and all the time you've spent on this project and with this content?
0: I mean, that's how you know a movie is really engrossing and really visceral when you can still escape into that world, even if you've literally written the book on it, you know? I I felt as soon as I put it on that the world fell away, even the world of writing the book, and I just got absorbed in it, which is why I love it, you know? There were three Mad Max movies that kind of tapered out in the 80s. They starred Mel Gibson. They were directed by George Miller. And in the meantime, George Miller went and made the most eclectic resume of films you can imagine. Like, you know, before he did Fury Road, he made two Happy Feet films. He was behind the Babe movies. He did Witches of Eastwick. It's just, he he has really varied interests. You wouldn't think meeting this guy that this like kindly old grandfather type would be the guy from which, you know, these crazy action movie spectacles originate from. He seems way more like the Happy Feet and Babe guy in real life. And I found that dichotomy really fascinating. It's, it's a great thing because, you know, the movie is something that rewards all of your scrutiny and all of your interest and all of your curiosity, but so are the people who made it, you know? To get to do these deep dives on George or, you know, a star like Charlize Theron who, who plays Furiosa, this really indelible action heroine in this movie... You know, I, I I really appreciated it. I like doing character studies. I find the upside of being a curious person and, and wanting to know more about people is inevitably it teaches you something about yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You talk about how this is a movie that is, you know, obviously a product of a visionary, as you explained, who has varied interests. But, you know, amongst visionaries, he's collaborative, which I think maybe is uncommon. And, and he seeks out advisors in fields that are different from his with really unique perspectives and qualifications. And you give this example of Eve Ensler coming in to teach the wives about sexual slavery. And there are many, many other less known contributions. And you talked about you know tracking down so many of those people who worked on this and Showing us how, you know, unlike so many action films, there's just such a density to this. So, of all of that and all the density, like, is there something that stands out to you as a favorite kernel that you discovered?
0: I think I was excited to tell the stories of people who don't usually get to tell their stories. I mean, you know, as obviously exciting and juicy as it is to write extensively about Charlize or Tom Hardy or George Miller the making of a movie involves so many people. I mean, we see it when the closing credits scroll. There's just hundreds and hundreds of people, especially on a movie as massive as this one. And I think in a normal book, you would just hear from people like Tom and Charlize and everything everybody else told you, the crew members would essentially be paraphrased. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to give the vibe of what it's actually like to be on a movie set, which is, yeah, I mean the stars are the top of the call sheet, but they're vastly outnumbered by that crew who was there before they get there and after they leave. And they are doing, you know, an incredible amount of work and they've got all the good stories. So, it was really exciting for me to get to tell entire chapters about people that nobody knows about, you know, whether it's a visual effects data wrangler who has the most amazing first day of shooting story or you know, this woman, Nadia Townsend, she's an actress and a dramaturge. I think she was just on the verge of turning 30 when George Miller and his co writer, Nico Lathuris, entrusted her to take all of these rowdy stunt men who'd never acted a day in their lives and put them through acting workshops so they could become the war boys that they play in the movie. And they lived it. She taught them all these really incredible unconventional techniques to kind of like get them in that spirit. And they just embodied it at all times, onset, offset, you know, it made that whole world feel more real. And that's a gift to me as an author, because, you know, the more real it felt for them, the more the kind of like themes of the movie bled into their actual lives. And I found that sort of permeability really fascinating. It, you know, again, you're talking about the movie, you're talking about the making of the movie, but those two things kind of comment on each other, the more they, they blur together.
1: Yeah, and everyone, you know, I think about that all the time here. Everybody has a story to tell. Everyone is interesting if you're present and listen and ask questions and spend time with them and and you can sense that care in your book and in your writing and yeah I I think that's really cool do you think with we mentioned these 135 interviews it seemed to me like a, a real Goldilocks amount of time had had passed for everyone you know like not too much or they'd forgotten but also been given enough space to have some perspective did you feel that way when talking to them and is that why you wanted to embark on this now
0: I think so. I I think I lucked out. It was just the right amount of time where they had enough distance that they felt they could be candid about it without, you know, some studio publicists leaving down their throat. And also not enough time had passed for those memories to fade, if they ever will. I mean, people have really vivid memories of of the making of this movie. Charlize kind of likens it to a hole in the pit of her stomach. As proud as she is of it, it was not easy to make. You know that inherently when you watch it, it's part of the thrill. You're like, how the hell did they pull this off? But you know, to hear those stories, it's really incredible the amount of dedication and what it took from everybody to, to make this film under really crazy unusual circumstances.
1: To your point about the thumbprint of the movie theater, do you remember the first time you watched this film?
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I saw it at a press screening. Not only do I remember it, but the people that I was sitting around remember how I reacted to it. I think it's it's probably the only time my jaw has literally dropped while watching a movie. I just was seeing things I never really seen before in an action film, which is a tall order, because I feel like Action films are so expensive that they become kind of safe, you know. Studio executives aren't willing to greenlight them unless it directly resembles something that came before it. That's part of the reason why the Marvel movies are so successful. You know, I mean, I do think that they take some chances and I am entertained by them, but they're, you know, they're serialized, they're following each other. There's kind of a house tone to all of them. And Fury Road is just like tonally so gonzo, so crazy, so incredible. You know, as soon as I saw an electric guitar that spits fire, I, I yeah, I, my jaw dropped, I just was like, this is so pushing it, so willing to go anywhere. And, and and it felt exciting, you know, that combined with the incredible action, with all these incredible female characters that you don't usually get to see in an action movie, like, you know, the climax of the movie, the third act of the film involves like several women who are over 60 doing stunts it's incredible and it just made me realize I was settling for less like yeah I love a good action movie or a good superhero movie but they could be better they could venture so much more than they do they don't have to venture as much as Fury Road does it would be hard to match that but you know try a little harder take some more chances if you know if if, if Hollywood will let you
1: mm, yeah yeah that's so cool Well, before I let go, I just want to talk briefly about the Oscars. Are there any films that I'm sure you have to answer this a million times, but take it in any any way you want to. Are there films that you are wishing got more attention or anything that you just really loved or really anything you want to say about movies this year currently?
0: I'm pretty happy with the Oscar nominations this year, at least with Best Picture. You know, I always look to Best Picture to present sort of a snapshot of what that year in film was like for better or for worse. They went back to an even 10 best picture nominations this year and I truly believe the more the merrier. It gives you a more expansive idea of, of what mattered that year. It makes it possible to include, you know, films that aren't conventional Oscar movies but that are totally worthy examples of their genre. So yeah, I really like everything this year. Uh, the only thing that I would uh, go to bat for is, you know, there's this film called Passing. It's on Netflix. It's this really provocative movie about race uh, that stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. And Ruth Nega delivered what to me was the most unforgettable performance of of last year as this black woman passing for white. She's got so much going on in her head in any one scene. And yet she's so playful. I just don't think Anybody else could have done that role like she did. I thought that should have been a no-brainer for a supporting actress nomination. And, you know, no shade to the women who did get that nomination. But yeah, boy, that was my favorite performance. I wish she was in that final five.
1: Mm, I'm looking forward to watching it. To go back to escapism briefly and and resting with entertainment, is there anything like a nostalgia movie or all-time favorites or something you watch Nostalgically,
0: <laughs> You know, it's a good question. I'm always torn by the impulse to go back and watch something that I love that I've seen a thousand times and maybe I could share with somebody else. And the impulse to watch so many new movies, I mean, you couldn't possibly get through films that you've never seen. There's There's always incredible movies that you've heard about and want to watch. To me, it's less about revisiting older films and driving comfort for them, and more about just getting to go to the movie theater. That's my comfort place. That's the old familiar. I mean, it helps if the movie's good. Uh, in fact, it's a great sensation when the movie's good and you're in that seat and you're experiencing that greatness, you know, hopefully even for the first time with so many other people. I mean, a shared revelation, not not all art can give us that, but movies can if you see them in the theater.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, one last question about just writing and creativity in general, which is like the usual theme of this show. Do you have any habits or routines for writing and your process, whether it's, you know, your, your work with the times or with writing this book or anything that, that helped any writing advice that was given to you or that you tend to give out?
0: Yeah. I think it's important to not write like you're writing a term paper. Uh, you know, I talked to A lot of people who are incredible conversationalists. There's so many people who are really funny and spiky and full of personality on Twitter. And then you write something that they or you read something that they've written and it feels like a high school essay. The challenge, I think, is to be able to write like you think and like you talk. Some of us are better in in one respect than the other, but for me, my writing is best when it's just like a total one-to-one connection with my brain and my pen, where I feel like the thoughts just come out pure. The hardest part is we get in our way so much of the time. We think, oh, if we're, if we're actually committing to the act of writing, then it's got to sound like this. No, the only thing writing has got to sound like is you. That's when writing is the best, not when it sounds like anybody else, not when you're making it sound more formal. Whenever I've gotten blocked, I think to myself, well, what if I was just texting a friend about this? What if I was sending an email to somebody about this? Wouldn't I just approach it in such a more casual, more true to myself way? Well, then why can't I do that in my writing? So, I always do that. I I have people in mind when I write and anytime I ever get lost, I just start texting a friend and the simpler ways that I describe something are almost always the right ways. I love that. So
1: good. So this podcast is called Let It Out. So is there anything else that you want to let out? Anything that you wish that I would have asked that you never get to to talk about? Anything you want to recommend?
0: No, you know, it was really nice to be able to talk about my process and kind of like the philosophy behind what I write. I think that even though I'm dispensing a little bit of, of advice in these last few minutes, the important thing is to figure out what works for you. Find the times when you find most engaged by what you're writing or even just what you're doing or saying and think to yourself, okay, so, why is, why are these circumstances right for me? Like, how do I not necessarily even replicate the situation so I can be most productive or most thoughtful or, or most tapped in with my writing? But think to yourself, like, why does this resonate with me, you know? Not only when you do that, not only are you going to, I think, ultimately become a better writer, but you're going to be a more connected to yourself sort of person. I'm always fascinated when my brain is slower to catch up than the rest of my body. When, like, I really respond to something, I have that visceral, physical reaction, and then my brain can kind of do the detective work of, like, huh. I wonder why I'm so into this. I wonder why this is working for me. What does that say about me? You know, that's what's so much fun when you get to be the detective in your own life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of finding your your sweet spot, your, you know, 1 a.m. theory of vulnerability and trying to, like you said, bring that into as many parts of your life and work as you can. Exactly. Mm. Thank you again so much for being here.
0: That was a pleasure.
1: We let out a deep breath together at the end. Are you down to do it with me?
0: (laughs) Yes, very ready.
1: Okay, inhale, let it out.
0: (sighs) That felt good.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Kyle.
0: Thank you, Katie.
1: That's our episode this week. Thank you so much for being here. If you're not already following our guest, Kyle Buchanan, Follow him on Twitter, read his articles on The Times, his column, The Projectionist, especially right now. If you are into movies and want to know more about award season, it's the ultimate place to go. I am really happy I met him. I'm really happy I got to hear about this project that he made. And if you want to read his book, the link is in the show notes. And I'm really happy that you were here. Thank you for listening. It truly means so much. And if you want to support this podcast, share it with a friend, support the sponsors, use the codes. It really does help so much. And let me know what you think. Let me know on Instagram, send me a message. I'm at Katie Dalebaugh and let it out. Follow Let It Out. It's Let It Out with three T's. That's the best way to know about new episodes. And Please sign up for the Let It Out letter, my newsletter that comes out every week or so or not right now because I'm behind as discussed previously. But I'm going to put in that this week of a few more quotes about David Carr and some of the things I mentioned earlier. And I think if you like this episode, you would probably like that newsletter that's about to come out that I'm cooking up. And go into the archive. I know this is a shorter episode. If you have a long drive or you want more Let It Out, there's so much in the archive. And if you do leave a review this week, send a screenshot. I'm I'm like so nervous to say this, but my friend Dr. Patty, who you know, she's been on the podcast, she gave me acupuncture this week. It's a really long story. And she was like, "I, I think you should do this thing where you like give people a prize if they leave a review because you really need to get more reviews and it would be so nice and she's like I, I haven't even done it because it's like a thing I, I want to do for you but I haven't had a chance. So if you do leave a review, I'm going to pick someone who sends me a screenshot or however you want to tell me that you'll have to review I'll trust you obviously but let me know and I will give you one of the, Kids, one of the Let It Out kits. If you don't know what they are, they're all available right now. And they're these journaling workshops, self study. You'll see. The the link will be there. And thanks again for listening. I was going to read something from the Fresh Air episode transcript, but I think maybe just listen to the episode and I will cut and paste it and write a little something about it in the next Let It Out letter. So If you are curious, it will be there. The prayer I mentioned earlier in the part that I remember hearing standing in the back of the plane. Gotta sign up for the newsletter. All right. Love you. The emoji for this week is the apple.